1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray for Ryan on this, right? This is, <laughs> this is not an easy one in, in, in the context of our time, but it is the Word of God. And, and I would ask Megan also to come up. Father, thank you for this couple that you have made one. Thank you for their care for us, for their flock. Thank you for their prayers for us, Father. And I pray that you would allow them to Teach your word well in actions, um, in proclamation, uh, in submissiveness. Uh, and may we learn well. Give us ears to hear this morning and eyes to see. And bless them and give Megan and Ryan favor. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, as Gordon said, we've got our work cut out for us this morning. But, but here's the deal. I'm not going to apologize for God's word. Um, but what I want to do is I want to look at it, uh, look at the full scope of it and with faith and ask God to reveal himself to us because I think there is something here for all of us uh, this morning. Um, I had the opportunity to do uh, a wedding several years ago and it just so happened to be the first wedding that I had ever officiated before. And if you think that you're nervous as the bride and groom standing up there, try being the guy on the other side of the table that's never done it before. Try not to mess up your perfect day, right? And so I'm, I'm standing up there uh, preaching the gospel, uh, officiating this wedding, and then, you know, uh, everything kind of closes up and there's a huge wedding party there. And this couple that had come into town from California comes up to me after the wedding and they say, they say, wow, we've never heard anything like that before. And I got two thoughts going through my head. You can guess what they are. One is, oh crap, where's the exit? <laughs> the second is, okay, maybe God's doing something here. Maybe something is different here. And as we went on to talk about it, they were struck by the fact that the wedding was far more about God than it was about the couple. Like the, the ceremony was. And that was because of my conviction that God first has to make a covenant with us before we can make a covenant with, with one another. And then also this couple just really wanted to honor Jesus. They, they had all their unbelieving friends in the room and they wanted to magnify Jesus Christ. And I couldn't argue with that. And so that's what we did. Um, today our text takes us to a discussion about the design and the role of men and women in the context of corporate worship. Uh, the original language that we're looking at today speaks uh, in terms of marriage uh, and how a husband and a wife relate to each other, not just how men and women relate to each other. But 
But I want to take this deeper than where we typically take marriage. Because most of the time when we look at marriage, we think uh, kind of on the surface level, husband and wife. But I think the Scriptures say that husband and wife being married to each other is just a reflection of how God's people relate to Him. That the church is the bride of Christ and that Jesus is the, is the bridegroom. And that's how we relate to one another. So uh, if we fail to look at the big picture of redemption this morning, um, we could easily walk out and say, oh, this was a sermon just for women, or this was a sermon just for married people. And I think God has so much more for us this morning. Uh, because this text this morning uh, is about Jesus. So whether you're married, uh, widowed, divorced, or single, uh, this thing is about Jesus this morning. And so I'm going to pray for us and just ask uh, for God to, to, to really open up those veins of our understanding this morning as we look at this text. Father, we, we come to this text this morning uh, and we, we have a lot of presuppositions as we look at it this morning. Uh, some of them probably really true, maybe some of them not so true. And so, Father, we just ask that You would speak to us this morning and that You would, you would love us through Your Word and that, Father, we would, we would seek to operate out of our design. Um, and that, Father, where, where we are tempted uh, to operate in other fashions, with other postures, that You might convict us of those sins and You might draw us together as Your family. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So this series that we're doing is called Rooted, uh, and, and we're walking through the book of 1 Timothy together uh, as a church, and the reason that we're doing this is we feel it's very timely for us as a church, because we are growing up as a church from the you know, two couples that were in my living room throughout the last almost two years, the church has grown, and we're getting to the place where we're coming out from under the covering of our sending church and standing on our own two feet. And uh, we just felt like the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy was a great place for us to look and to see really what God's expectation and desire is for His church, for His people, and how they relate to Him, but then also to one uh, another. Uh, because we, we know this, unless we investigate the real Jesus and, and, and the Word of God and, and see the real Jesus as He is, we are tempted to make God look like us. It's just a reality. We, we will make God look like us. We will seek the path of least resistance. But the Scriptures say that really walking with Christ is about being conformed. Not conforming God to our image, but us being conformed to God's image. And so we're going to walk down this road together. Before I get into the text though, I, 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 I owe you a little bit of um, uh, ex, uh, cultural exegesis. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, my, my homiletics or preaching professor uh, in seminary said, hey, um, you need to be great at exegeting the text about pulling it apart and really showing it to the church, but you also need to be really good about exegeting the culture that you're preaching in as well. And we see Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul doing this all over the place. And so uh, I would be foolish not to show a little bit of the history uh, of what's gone on in our culture to make this text such a divisive text. Um, so um, men, most of the women in the room will know these facts that I'm going to share with you about our nation's history in regards to women. Uh, many of you will not. And so, I want to share just a few things that have happened uh, in our culture, uh, because what Jesus came to do is to undo 
uh, these types of things. So I just want to share a few realities about uh, the history of, of women in our country, in the United States. Uh, 1769, the colonies adopt the English system declaring that women cannot own property in their own name or, get this, keep their own earnings. 1769. All right? It gets better, or it gets worse, actually. 1839. Mississippi is the first state to grant women the right to own property in their own names with one caveat. It has to be from the permission of their husbands. 1866, the 14th Amendment is passed by Congress with citizens and voters defined as male in the Constitution. Uh, this amendment dealt with the rights of slaves, but not with women. 1872, Susan B. Anthony cast her first vote to see if the 14th Amendment uh, would be interpreted broadly enough to guarantee women the right to vote. And as you guys know, the story, she's convicted of unlawful voting and thrown into jail. 1920, the 19th Amendment of, to the Constitution is ratified, which ensures women's right to vote. 1920. Less than 100 years ago, women can actually be represented in the vote. Okay? 1974, this is probably the one that blew my mind. Uh, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Anybody familiar with that? Women are shaking their head. I don't see any guys shaking their head. Listen to this. Do you realize that in this country, up until 1974, a woman could not have a line of credit in her own name? 43 years ago. No line of credit. Cannot, cannot own a house unless she's married to someone. Think about that. 43 years ago. So why would women be able to hear this Word of God that I'm preaching today? Uh, how would they be able to hear it in a positive way if not for faith in Jesus Christ? You see, our culture is trying to work this out all around us. we got marches, all kinds of jazz going on that are great and good things. But you cannot reconcile the design of God without the person of Jesus Christ and faith in Him. And so, what I'm advocating today is that we uh, would walk together in humility as we look at how God has designed us and how we relate to one another in that design, and that we would have a posture of humility and faith in Jesus as we seek to image Him both to one another and to the world faithfully. Uh, so, i got three points in what we're going to talk about today. The first one is this, the design. The second one is the distortion. And the third one is the dance. Alright, so let's get into the design. And this is our big idea today. Women and men are equal in dignity and complementary in roles. Equal in dignity, complementary in roles. So the roles and design of gender in relation to one another is something that God set in place in creation. This wasn't a result of the fall that, that He created Adam first and that He created Eve uh, from Adam. It was in fact the way that God designed us to image Himself to the world. Man was not enough. He needed woman. And the way that He created woman was different than the way that He created man. And the way that they related to each other was different. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I've got a few 
uh, scriptures here that I've kind of mashed up to, to kind of paint the picture for you because God always says it better than, than we can. So uh, here, here's Genesis uh, 1 and uh, following. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God saw everything that He made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day of creation. The Lord God formed... This goes on to tell about how God created man. The Lord God formed the man of, du- the man of dust from the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. The only time He says not good in Genesis 1 and 2. I will make him a helper fit for him. For Adam there was not for, has not found a helper fit for him. He's talking about in the rest of creation. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Fellas, who says our best work isn't done while we're sleeping? Amen? And he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He presented her. There's there's this wedding ceremony there. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is a picture before sin ever enters the world on how men and women were designed to reflect God's goodness to each other and to the world. And they could do this flawlessly. It's this beautiful picture where where both have different roles that are complementary. And neither are ashamed or embarrassed because of their roles and their design, but they live in perfect harmony together. And they seek the flourishing of one another as they interact with one another. Sometimes I wish we had more about how man and woman related to one another in the garden in the Scriptures. But we have to believe it was perfect. And they enjoyed the design that God had given them. So we have that picture of the design. We have that picture on how men and women, husbands and wives, relate to one another. Uh, the next is this, the complementary nature of God in Himself and the principle of headship. So headship uh, has to do with God's relation uh, to the world and His ordering of the relationships in it. Okay, uh, it's, this, it's this principle that started in the garden and is extended to the church. Um, and, and we're seeing some of that in 1 Timothy 2 today. Uh, there is submission um, and complementary nature uh, of God in and of Himself uh, in the Trinity. Now think about this. They are all the Trinity is this mysterious thing that really no one can explain, but it's all over the Scriptures. The word the tr- Trinity is not in the Bible, but it's how we explain the mysterious being of God and how He exists in three persons yet one. And so listen to how the Scriptures. Uh, describe God Himself. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. 
the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there's this ordering of relationships. So every man, uh, the head of every man is Christ because, because Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, right? So we submit to, to, to Christ. Uh, the head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. So even, even in Jesus, Jesus submits to the Father. Jesus submits to the Father, and this is why He endures the cross, because He trusts the Father. Even though things looked terrible in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus cries out, if there's any other way to make this happen, to glorify You, to obey You, let it be. But Father, not My will, but Yours. He goes on to say, in John 8, the Scriptures say, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. So Jesus has come to magnify and reveal the Father. And lastly, John 16, 13, and 14, the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Listen to this. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit, the humility of God. The Holy Spirit came to magnify Jesus to the world. So are you seeing the picture of how God, how we, how God even relates to Himself within the three persons of the Godhead and, and the design there? And that that design is not a bad thing. That it's a design. Well, that's the model for how we relate to one another and to God. So it's really important to see that that design is something that God set in place before sin ever entered into the world. And the reason is, is because the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to one another is riddled with distortion right now. It's riddled with it. And that's why this text makes it so difficult for us to understand. So let's look at the second point. The distortion. Now here's the deal. Sin affects how we relate to God and to one another. Um, <clears throat> and this is where we're going to spend really the bulk of our time as we look at the, the 1 Timothy 2 text uh, today. Um, so there are some distortions in how men and women relate to each other. And sociologists have uh, coined these distortions um, in, in, with some different isms. And we're going to look at those quickly uh, just so that we can call a spade a spade and really just put it out there. Uh, then I'm going I'm to show you what I think the Scriptures call us to. So the first one uh, is this. It's called chauvinism. Uh, you're very familiar with with chauvinism. Uh, and, and chauvinism says this, that women are subordinate to men both in dignity or worth and in role. Whatever a man says goes, I don't care, no ifs, ands, or buts. That's the way it is. That's chauvinism. On the other side of the ditch, we have feminism. Feminism says this, that men uh, are subordinate to women both in dignity and in role. And, and next, we have... Uh, Fluidism. Uh, and, and guys, you may be tempted to think that this isn't a really, really that big of a deal, but I, I can promise you that there are people uh, in this church that, that wrestle with this or people that are affected relationally by folks that wrestle with this. Uh, this is a real, real concern. Uh, fluidism says this that women and men discover their gender identity and their gender role. That, that we can just, we can figure it out. I, I was telling our 
our staff about an article that I had read in the, the National uh, Geographic uh, magazine that was, was talking about children uh, really experiencing fluidism and, and, uh, and really the, the fallout from that. Um, and it's uh, very disheartening. So um, next, uh, egalitarianism, which I would say is probably uh, the view that is most accepted uh, culturally around us that I, that I think is uh, a distortion as well. It says this, Women and men are equal in dignity. Completely agree with that. And, uh, and, and equal in role. Um, I, I don't think that's what the Scriptures teach. Instead, um, here's what I think the Scriptures teach. And it's, it's a big word. Um, we could just say the Scriptures' role on gender identity uh, would do the trick too. Complementarianism. That men and women complement each other. Uh, they're equal in dignity with complementary roles. They're equal in dignity with complementary roles. So the problem is, is a lot of times when we, when, we, when we see that God has given us different roles in the context of relationships, that we then project that to mean that dignity isn't the same. And that's, that's a distinction that the Scriptures never really make. That men and women are equal in dignity with complementary roles is the way that I want to look at this. So let's look, without further ado, at, uh, at 1 Timothy 2. Um, as we as we get into this together, so as you're turning there, I want to read I want to read um, I want to read Genesis chapter three, uh, verse seventeen. And the reason why I want to look at Genesis is I want to I want to show you that the effects of the fall are the things that Paul is talking about in the church uh, at Ephesus. They they are recapitulating themselves over and over and over again. The things that God says will happen as a result of the fall, the consequences are the things that we still deal with today and how we relate uh, to one another. So Genesis 3.17 says this, and I'm going to address the, the fellows first here because that's where 1 Timothy 2 takes us in verse 8. So Genesis 3.17 says this, And to Adam, he said, and this is the, the consequences after, after the sin in the garden, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, or in other words, you've sidestepped your design, You've, you've, you've taken matters into your own hands. He's not saying because you and your wife had a conversation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because you've uh, abnegated your role, you've, you've, you've given it over, here's the consequences. You've eaten of the tree which I commanded you shall not eat, and cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Man, this is why work is really, really hard. This is why we idolize work and we never can, can, can accomplish what we want to in work. It is a result of the fall. So, Timothy is instructed in this way. Here's what, here's what Paul says. And, and keep in mind, this is all a result. This is all in the context of how we relate to one another in the, in the body of Christ. First thing he wants to do is address men. He says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray. Men should pray. Men shouldn't be silent. They should pray. They should vocalize the request to God. Now how many men in here are just like me have a terribly difficult time crying out to God and want to do things on our own? All of us, if I ask you how often you pray with your wife, you would probably say, you know, not much because it's really hard and we don't really know why it is and we can pray in other places but we can't pray with our wife. We, we can't lift up holy hands. We don't know why this is the case. 
The reason is, is this is our posture, this is our leaning from the fall. We're just seeing it play out over and over and over again. So how does it manifest itself? It manifests itself, uh, our, our abnegation of our role manifests itself in either silence, and somehow we men think that when we're silent that, hey, at least, I, at least I'm not doing any harm. The silence of Adam was the most harm that could have ever been done. Or it manifests itself in quarreling and anger. So, so how would I sum up the struggle of men from 1 Timothy 2? I'd say it like this. It's an abnegation or a renouncing of leadership that Jesus extends to us. So we give it up. We give it up because it's too hard. We don't want to stay in the game. And it manifests itself in the oppression of women. And yes, I said that word. It manifests itself in the oppression of women. How do we oppress women, men? We do it by being quiet. By not stepping up into the role that God has given us to reflect Himself, both in the church and in our families. He's made us that way. He's designed us that way. It also manifests itself in anger um, and quarreling as well. So both sides of the ditch. And it ultimately distorts the beauty and gifting of women because we don't step into the role that God has given us. I told you it was going to be intense today. This has been beating me up for two weeks. Why do y'all think I had Jeff preach last week? I needed two weeks for this. Kind of get things together here. Silence oppresses women. It's, it's, it's time for us to acknowledge that reality. Um, so what would it look like? What would the invitation of God look like to you fellows to step up into that role even though you don't have it all together? To seek to be disciples so you could lead your family, you could lead your wife, you could lead Christ's church in a way that would honor God. What would that look like for you today? Because our only hope is to come to Jesus uh, and to seek Him in rest that He would fulfill this desire in us. Now let's keep going down through 1 Timothy 2. uh, Looking at verse 9, Paul then addresses women. And I, I want to do the same thing that I did with men. I want to go back to the garden and I want to look at the effects of the fall and then I want to look at how that affects the church in Ephesus here. It says, to the woman, Genesis 3.16, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire, and don't miss this, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what's that mean? You will want to be independent, but he will take advantage of his positional leadership. It will be contrary to your husband. Now, those of you that are married or have grown up in you know, a family where your, your parents are married, you, you get this. And I'm not going to make a joke about it because it's all too real, right? It really is. This is, this is part of the effects of the fall, but, but the grace of God is so much better. So, looking at the context of this passage, I want to remind you of what Jesus came to do. Because the women in the culture when Jesus came on the scene were drastically oppressed. They, they didn't have a voice. I mean, it was, it was even worse than it was in the U.S., right? Uh, and, and all those statistics and laws that I read off to you. I want, I want you to, ladies, I want you to hear about, and men, I want you to hear about how Jesus liberates women. I just want to share a couple of examples with you. So think about the woman who touches Jesus' robe in Mark chapter 5. She's, uh, 
She has an ailment, and Jesus comes through her town, and she reaches out just to touch the fringe of His robe. Now Jesus had a lot of people touching Him, did He not? He had a lot of people kind of wanting to get time with Him, but Jesus acknowledges the fact that He says power has gone out from Me because someone has reached out in faith in the desire to be healed. And there on the spot, this woman is healed. He, he not only acknowledges her, but makes Himself accessible to this woman for healing. This was crazy. They didn't think the Messiah would be like this. Or what about the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 where the woman uh, is there in the middle of the day uh, getting hot water out of the well because she is so embarrassed by her lifestyle. And Jesus says, hey, you're looking for water, but I, I could show you where to get living water. You won't keep going back to these dry wells that you've been searching for life in. I could show you where to get that. He acknowledges her. And the disciples, they go into town to get some food, and they come back and they see this interaction happening. And Jesus is painting a picture for them on what it looks like to be equal in dignity and to differ in roles. He's painting this picture for them. Or my personal favorite, how about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 7 and 8? Remember, the, the Pharisees, they bring this woman out and she's been caught in the act of adultery. She probably doesn't have any clothes on in front of the world to see. They bring her out and they say, hey Jesus, you know what the law says? The law says this woman should be stoned to death for this. And do you know what the law actually says? That both the man and the woman should be stoned to death. They're using her as a prop for this, this trick they're trying to play on Jesus. And Jesus says, let, let those among you who have no sin cast the first stone. And surely it's just her and Jesus left. And, and, she, and Jesus says to her, hey, where'd they all go? And, and she just kind of looks at Him bewildered and He says, you know, go and sin no more. He liberates the woman. Or lastly, the anointing of Jesus by a sinful woman in Luke 7. So Jesus is having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house, and it is like, you know, to the, to the T's. I mean, it is just like a great party. I, I can just picture this party. I mean, Pharisee invites you in. He's probably got just this posh pad, right? I mean, they're, they are kicking back. They're enjoying it. And all of a sudden, a woman, a sinful woman, barges in and starts anointing Jesus uh, with her tears and, 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 uh, and, and just falling at His feet. And Jesus is in the company of all these high, powerful men in Jewish culture. And you know what he does? He's like, hey guys, sorry, i got something more important to do here. You guys can you know, just go party without me. He acknowledges this woman and lets her worship right in front of all of them. Think about the dignity that he restored in that woman. This is what Jesus came to do. So as we pick up in 1 Timothy 2 here, Jesus has liberated these women. And in the churches, especially in Ephesus, these women had been liberated. They'd been a part of the culture of the church and a part of the, the leadership of the church in those complementary roles. And, and something else you need to know about the way corporate worship worked in this day is it was far more interactive. It was far more communal. It wasn't this monologue, but it was more of a dialogue. Now, why that's changed, I don't know. I don't know why that's changed, but it's not the same way that it used to be. And so, evidently what had happened is things had gotten out of hand and 
Some of the women were quarreling with the men about things that they said in the context of corporate worship. So you can imagine you know, us talking back and forth and bantering back and forth. And This is the context that Paul gives this instruction to the women in the church at Ephesus. So let me read the, these verses real quick again. And then I'm just going to walk through them uh, quickly and explain a few things. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9-15 through Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So I want to stop there. So he talks. the first thing he wants to talk about is appearance. Um, he wants to talk about appearance. Evidently, uh, the appearance of the women in, in the church contextually at this time was taking the focus off of God. Um, now, obviously, um, braided hair, uh, gold, pearls, uh, that's, that's not really things that we would say, man, that's really taking my focus off God today. But the principle that we can distill from this is that appearance matters. Appearance matters. And, and uh, <clears throat> ladies, this matters more to you, more, to, more for the men in this church than you could ever imagine. A way to serve your male counterpart image bearers, the other half of the image of God, um, is to consider these verses when you go shopping, when you get dressed in the morning, when you know you're going to be around the body of Christ, to consider those things. And, 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 and dads, look, listen, when you've when, when you got little girls, start that conversation early. I'm already, Tatum, Tatum comes downstairs, you know, get back up, put something else on. I'm, I mean, she's seven. I'm already, we're already having that conversation because it's important. Sometimes my wife will even come to me and say, hey, what do you think? And, and so we'll have that conversation. Open those lines of communication up because it matters. It matters so much that it's in the Bible. We can help each other walk together in Christ, uh, especially uh, when it re- regards appearance. And so uh, uh, that's, a, that's a definitely a thing to consider and, and, and something to, to think about there. Going on to verse 11 here, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Wow. It's not easy to hear, is it? It's not easy to look at God and think, man, you're a loving God that really values me when you hear those words. But the context of it is, is hey, there's this, there's this bantering going back and forth. And God's, God has this original design in, in, in mind and, and both parts aren't living out of the design so everything malfunctions. So, so what does He mean with that? Well, when we look at uh, 1 Timothy 5.13, we would see that Paul isn't, he's, he's not demanding silence in corporate worship. Because he's talking about how women would bring a prophecy or a prayer and things like that into the corporate worship gathering. So he's not demanding complete silence, but rather, he, he's emphasizing the importance of women having a teachable spirit in corporate worship. Uh, He's saying that women, because of how the fall has impacted you, will be at times tempted to gossip and to be busybodies. They just make chatter. But the Spirit of God came to conform you to the image of Jesus and to give you that teachable spirit. That humble spirit where you you are in this place of of deep rest. That's what the word means right there. It means rest. So so what does it look like to, 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 to function and worship out of a place of deep rest instead of having to feel like you have something to prove. This is what the Scriptures say is the design of women and that that men may be able to thrive in their leadership positions 
uh, in light of that. He goes on to talk about submissiveness. Now this isn't an oppression of gifting in women. In fact, I'll talk about this later, but there are no gender-specific gifts, okay? There's none. You're not going to find them in the Bible. But this is about being reminded of the order and gifting of God-given roles. So, so what does it look like? Uh, You know, I get this objection sometimes. How can I submit to my husband when he doesn't lead me? It's a good question, isn't it? How do I submit to him when he... When he doesn't lead me. Well, the Scriptures teach us in other places that, that sometimes when, when you're submissive, it looks like you, you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a culture and a posture of, of a submissive, submissiveness. <laughs> oh, goodness. We're rolling. We're doing good. There's a culture there where where husbands and wives can thrive out of their unique design. Um, in fact, Paul says in other places that spouses can be one to the Lord with the way that you interact with one another. Um, so it's much deeper than, than just a husband and wives. It's about trusting in Jesus and dying to ourselves as we walk with Him. We go on to verse 12. Where he takes it even, even deeper here. He says, I do not, he comes straight out and says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. So that word, that word authority, it, it actually only occurs in this place in the whole Bible. That word that he uses for authority there. And it means to have a, an absolute sway or a, a kind of an autocratic uh, behavior. Um, and we see in Greek, Greek, in Greek literature, it often meant like that, that that word for authority meant that they exercise the right to take someone's life, even in their own family. So what, what does that mean as we look at this? What it means is that, uh, that, that a wife in her public life or her private life should never usurp the role of her husband. Um, so, so wives don't murder your husbands with your words. Husbands don't murder your wife and your family with your anger, aggression, or silence. We both have roles to play in this. And when we, when we, we, we try to go outside of the design, that's where the malfunction happens. Now, so how would I sum up the struggle of women? Well, I've got God's Word, so I'll start there. But then I've also sought some ladies in the church to help me with this and how to phrase this. And here's what we've come up with. That it's, it's just like the men. It's an abnegation or it's a renouncing of the rest that a quiet heart in Jesus produces. It's an abnegation or renouncing of the rest that a quiet heart in Jesus produces. I want you to think about Mary and Martha here. This is the story of Jesus interacting with these two women. And they both have different postures. One of them is they just want to, you know, Mary wants to just sit at the feet of Jesus and to ponder his word and to just be with him. And Martha is busy with the chores of the house and she's just she's going nuts. And Jesus says to them, Hey, Mary, Mary's chosen um, the better portion here to be in the presence of Jesus. So you get this picture, just what it looks like to rest in Jesus. Now, the distortion of this manifests itself by seeking identity in control over circumstances. So he's not leading, so I'm gonna step up and do something about it. That's what we saw in the garden, right? 
in relationships and in titles and performance with an underlying fear of rejection and loneliness. So the desire all along for women is to be led and to be loved and to be cherished and, and for the men to look at the gifting and beauty of the woman and to cherish that as the image of God. What would that look like if we were to do that as a church? If we were to look, at men and women, we were to look at our different designs and we would, we were to think of each other and to build one another up in those designs instead of trying to compete for the glory of God. What would that look like? I think it would be a beautiful dance of grace. So, wrap this thing up here. Grace draws us back into the redemptive unity we were made to reflect to one another in the world. Megan and I uh, had been married for about a year together. Uh, and we were in Indianapolis. Indianapolis. And uh, I need some water. And there was this guy that was on our student ministry team. And he was, he's a great friend of mine to this day. But uh, I remember a particular situation where this, this husband was just bashing his wife, talking about all the ways that she didn't line up with, with what he expected. And, uh, and you know, it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of awkward, you know. <laughs> and Megan, you know, she may be small, but she's fierce, trust me. She stood up and she said, she said hey, you can't talk about your wife like that. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, uh, uh, so I'm just sitting there, and, and he kind of responded like this, you know, you're right. You know, you're right. And it, he may have not been that forthcoming with that, but he, he realized very quickly that he was in the wrong with how he had treated his wife. And there were unmet expectations there, and we could, we could ultimately boil down our frustrations with our God-given roles to unmet expectations. But when you notice the gifting of God in your husband or your wife or men and women in the church, and we call that out, and we applaud that, it, is, it, it gives courage to keep walking in obedience, even when the culture around us says, no, you go to, you go to a church that says that women can't, can't preach. So, so, you know, so that, that can't be what God wants. When we call out the fact that that we're gifted and wired differently and we have different roles and, and that that's something that, that images God more beautifully than anything else, we're sticking it to the devil and we're saying, look, this is what God has designed for the world to see. And we're going to celebrate that even though it's not popular. And we get this from God's Word. And so, uh, so you know, this, this dance... Is, is a, it takes two to tango, right? You know, Megan and I took ballroom dancing lessons when we lived in Indianapolis, and we made it through one because I didn't have much rhythm. But um, uh, we were supposed to go to others, and I'm not real sure why we didn't. I think, I think she may have called them and said, hey, you know, not really good at dancing. It's not really working out here. But uh, it takes two to tango. And so for us as a church, as a body of believers, it takes two to tango. We need to, we need to live out our unique design together. So a couple things here just to, to take away. What's this mean? What's this sermon mean for the body of Christ here at New City? What's it mean for us? First one is this. Is there uh, are no gender-specific spiritual gifts. So women, you have the gift of teaching. Some of you have it to a greater degree than others. We are we're not saying that you don't have that gift. We're just saying that the Scriptures seem to designate when those gifts are to be used. And there's a reason and a design behind that. And while we might not be able to put all the pieces together, we want to obey uh, God's Word and submit to God's Word in all things. 
Uh, so, so through the Holy Spirit, men and women are to exercise the full range of their gifts uh, in the church and seek to be real ministry partners. Um, and we come back to just looking at, at the design of headship that comes from Genesis and how that works itself out. And, and, and really what Jeff taught last week, that, that the elders of the church are the ones that are, that are, that are called to teach and, and they're, they're to be the husband of one wife. And so the Scriptures give us a pretty clear portrait there, and so we want to step into that. Secondly, I would say this. There is a difference between the general teaching gift and the special teaching office. Now, this isn't explicit uh, in the Scripture, but it's implicit. We, we infer these things, and I want to show you how we get here real quick. So the general teaching gift, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Um, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, uh, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded to you. Teaching them. That's every disciple. Every disciple was called to teach to some degree. We see that all over the Scriptures. We see in Acts 18, we see Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife team, uh, sharing the Scriptures, teaching the Scriptures to Apollos, who is really confused on what the Holy Spirit is. And so they, they teach it together. They come alongside one another. We see in 1 Corinthians 11 that, that women are praying and prophesying in the context of gathered worship. There's nothing wrong with that. The women play a vital role in instructing uh, younger children and other younger women. We see that in Titus chapter 2. So there are definitely, there are definitely places where the, 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 the teaching gift that women have, and, and some of the women in this church, guys, they're they're very skilled teachers. You need to understand that and you need to celebrate that with them, all right? Because they're going to be more comfortable walking that out in the, in the appropriate context whenever you celebrate that with them. So when they, when they lead a missional community or, or something that you're a part of, man, go tell them how good of a teacher they are. Help them, rem, remind them of God's gift. Special teaching office second. So, the context of Paul's letter to Timothy is corporate worship. So in Hebrews chapter 13, in verses 7 and 17, the Scriptures talk about uh, uh, submitting to leaders and that these leaders that teach them are held to a higher standard. So there's, so there's a distinction between this general kind of teaching uh, gift that everyone has and then there's an office that we would say uh, belongs to the elders in the church where they declare with authority the word of God to you and I would also include elders in training because how, how are we going to know if guys are able to teach if we don't let them teach right so you're going to have elders in training that are teaching you and exhorting you in the scriptures as well so um, to kind of close this thing up here's what I want you to know that women and men are equal in dignity and complementary in roles, just as Christ and His church function. And New City Church, we cannot afford to have it any other way. We can't afford to. And so let's seek to encourage one another, to build one another up in love, and to live out of our unique design and roles in a complementary way. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would give us faith. Faith to believe that You love us, that You haven't left us. Faith to own our own sin. Faith to confess it 
and faith to receive grace from You. Father, give us faith to believe that, that what Your Word prescribes to us is the best way for us, the best expression for us to relate uh, to one another and to the world around us. Now, many of us have fears that surround that because we've been abused. We've, we've, we've been oppressed in some ways. Or we've just never been shown the way before. We confess that to You and we say we don't really know how we're going to do it. But I pray that we'd have faith to say that Your way is the best way and that You will bless that obedience. So Father, I want to pray for the singles that are in this room today who may be tempted uh, to feel uh, forgotten. To maybe, f- maybe tempted to feel that they really they don't get to experience the full image of God together. And I pray that You'd give them a deep sense of rest. And Father, I pray that our church would celebrate, celebrate their unique place in life and will be a family for them. Father, I pray, uh, pray for the widows in our church that, uh, that have, have, lost, have lost their husbands, have lost their wives. And feel and hear this and feel somewhat incomplete. God, remind them that, that marriage is ultimately about you. And that you meet us in the midst of that. Father, I pray for the men in here who've who've really abnegated their role in the home. Who who never had anyone show them the way and are falling forward right now. God, I pray that you would wrap them with your grace. I pray that the men and the women will come around those men and seek to help them flourish. Seek to see them. To celebrate the ways when they do get it right. To encourage them maybe when they get it wrong. Father, I pray for the women who who are in these places where they feel oppressed in some ways and are hearing this message really from the culture around us that, that God doesn't really love them because of His design and plan. I pray that we would call a lie a lie and You would give us faith to believe. Uh, that we don't, they don't have to, to rule over their husbands. They don't have to, to be in those positions that You've designed for men, but they can, they can rest in the design and identity that You've given, that You've granted, and that it's the best way forward. And I, Lastly, I pray for the kids that are in this church, and I, I uh, some of them have been confused by you know the fallout of sin, and 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 I just think about the the conversations that we have about gender and role and how different they are now than they were 20 years ago. God, would you give us grace to contend and to speak the truth in love? And would you build a generation of your people that are so confident in who you are? that nothing can shake that. Jesus, we love You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Amen.